Welcome to the American Reformer Podcast, hosted by Josh Abatoy and Tymon Klein. Our mission is to promote a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day, rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought. All right. Hello and welcome back to the American Reformer podcast. You've got uh, your intrepid host, Josh Abatoy here, and uh, our co-host, Tymon Klein, editor-in-chief. Uh, Tymon, uh, how are you doing today? Good, Josh. Good to be with you. Um, how were your holidays? They were good. They were, uh, you know, somewhat uneventful, um, actually under the weather. So um, I was convalescing. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you know, it was a good, good, quiet time, uh, just with the family, no travel. Good. And of course, so, and of course I say it's... holidays not to be ecumenical, but this will be coming out after new Year's. So, I mean, Christmas and new year's and epiphany, the Christian holidays. Right. Yeah. Right. Will it, will it be coming out after Christmas? Like the 14 days of Christmas? That's the question. Let's see. Let's see. Um, this should be coming out probably on January 4th. So n- okay. not quite. No, okay. no, but, um, but towards the end, towards the end of merrymaking and uh, we'll be moving into our liturgical calendar aimed towards Easter at that point. So, um, very good. Very good. Awesome. So, um, you know, today we're going to, um, you know, it's just the two of us. We don't have a guest with us. And we wanted to reflect a little bit on what American Reformer has been doing and then really what we're looking at in the coming year. I, I think on the journal side and then just more broadly, what what do we think the year holds for the church, for America? How does that relate to the journal and its and its themes that we anticipate needing to speak to this year, um, giving people a little bit of a sneak preview and, and maybe, you know, just, just opening it up to um, what, what the two of us uh, see on the horizon as live material issues. But time, and maybe we can just start, I'll just start by, by teeing it up. What, what do you currently anticipate being major focuses of, of the American Reformer Journal um, in 24? Yeah, so I mean, I don't have to tell you this, Josh, but uh, 2023, uh, sorry, um, has has been a huge blessing from the Lord on an American reformer. I mean, we've seen tremendous and steady growth. Um, we we've gotten a lot more attention, uh, so on and so forth. So it's been a um, it's been a banner year for American reformer. But we, I think, both of us predict that it will be more of the same in the coming year. Um, which is awesome. Um, part of what will be driving that, I think, will be in one sense more of the same of what people have come to expect over the past year from American Reformer. We'll continue to have, you know, we've been at daily publication for a while. So in terms of production, uh, that will be stable. Um, we'll have more of uh, our sort of resourcement project that we launched this year, which is focusing on, you know, the American Protestant canon is what I've been calling it, which is sermons and speeches primarily from the 17th, 18th, and 19th century that uh, will get people back in touch with 
um, not just the continuity between uh, the magisterial reform tradition and the American Protestant tradition, um, but also better um, sort of political arguments that I think mm -hmm. can be applied to many issues that are on the horizon, the very near horizon for us. Um, better ways of thinking about issues that are coming back around to us again as we sort of re-enter re a, um, a true political mm -hmm. scenario, true politics, fundamentals uh, coming back into view. So some of the things we'll be doing to sort of land the plane, use those those older sources um, and lots of our, you know, drawing from our, our great array, I think, of, of writers that we've sort of gathered around us um, is to touch on issues that in 2024 are just as they were in 2020 and 2016 election years going to be very hot. And we've seen, you know, a lot of the, the impetus for American reformers to provide Protestant thought leadership um, on some of these issues in a way that, that no one else is doing or is too afraid to do. Um, so there was no sort of counter to what we would call uh, lame regime baptized opinions um, that predominated in 2016, especially. And this time around, uh, you know, you're going to have different voices in the mix, different different perspectives to combat the status quo. Um, so on some of these issues in 24, I think we'd agree big ones are going to be questions of um, immigration, of the nature of our polity. Um, I was just reading, um, I forget what the Culture Wars book from the from the 80s was, from James Davison Hunter, you know, where he's he's talking about, you know, the the real battle is is what is the meaning of America, and that was that was back thirty years ago almost, um, if I'm if I'm remembering the dates right. Um, so some of these these things, you know, the history of America, the the nature of America, you know, what is it supposed to be as a polity, and then these more granular issues like immigration, law and order, um, so on and so forth. We're gonna we're gonna be making an effort to bring in smart, uh, thoughtful takes on these things. Um, it's not just about the election, but it's, it's really about the future of, of our polity. Um, so people can be looking out for, um, I'm not going to say it's news cycle oriented, but it is going to be, um, situated around the sorts of issues we predict will be, um, hot button topics again, as they have been over the past four year cycles, the two four year cycles we've had, um, we're also going to have, again, I said more resourcement. We're going to continue that, but also a few symposiums that people should look out for uh, touching on different issues. One of those is going to be Colin Redimer's new book, uh, specifically his introduction on Tehern that he's published, which deals a lot with technology. And we've brought in several big authors to contribute to that. Uh, that'll be early in the, probably earliest symposium in the year around February uh, will interest people. Um, another one is going to be on you know, moving away in some ways from the Christian nationalist discussion to just talk about what is the nature or future of Baptist political thought and liberalism generally. And we have a lot of uh, mm -hmm. very good authors to talk about that that have already agreed to do so. That will be a bit later in the spring. So that'll be our second symposium. And there may be a couple others that we have lined up that I'm, I, I won't announce yet because uh, we need to shore them up. But um just touch sort of broadening the discussion on the Christian new right, if we, as we've come to call it, uh, which, which includes Christian nationalism. We've led the discussion in that over the past year, I think is, is safe to say. Um, but we want to expand that and, um, you know, bring in all of our Protestant brethren, uh, to, to discuss, uh, the, the sort of 
state of the regime, state of the country, and what Protestantism generally as America has understood it has to offer. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. A couple things you said there that I, I want to follow up on. Um, the first one, you said this early on, but you said, um, you know, we're returning to real politics. And, um, you know, maybe for some of our listeners who, you know, may not be as familiar with this, this vocabulary and the way you're using it, um, can can you just explain a little bit what you mean by that? I, I, I take it yeah. implicitly you're saying that the post-war consensus, or perhaps liberalism more generally, has um, subordinated real politics under procedural fights. And so a return to real politics is actually a return to clashes over substance, substantive differences in terms of uh, what is the good life, um, you know, what what is you know, what, what is the end or the telos of our polity? But what, what, what precisely do you, do you have in mind when you say that? No, that's exactly, that's exactly right. And, um, so the, the return to real politics, and I don't mean real politique necessarily, um, although that has something to do with it or can have something to do with it, but real politics, like you're saying, is the, the most basic questions of how we're doing life together. So as, as you said, in the post-war consensus, maybe a bit there prior, maybe it's baked into cake. Those are all debates that have been had. Um, but the point is, for, for several decades at least, um, Americans generally, Protestants also, have relied upon the sort of procedural posture, um, the sort of algorithm that will that anything can be plugged into and, and um, amenable results will be, will be pumped out, right? So we don't have to really worry about these fundamental differences on basics, on family life, on marriage, on morality, so on and so forth. And we can just kind of coast, we can put it on this cruise control. That has been demonstrated over the past, I would say at least five years, maybe before, um, to be fracturing. It's If it ever did work, mm -hmm. it, was, it was a sort of veneer and it's certainly breaking apart now. And so we're back to doing the real business of politics, the real um, discussion of, of symbiosis of how, how we're going to live. And there's a few data points we can cite on this. I already mentioned life of the family. I mean, I was just reading an article today about an Oregon case where a Christian woman, now the ADF is defending her in a, in a lawsuit. You know, she's not allowed, she's been denied the ability to, to foster parent because of her Christian beliefs, because she will not um, agree to use um, abnormal pronouns um, and uh, take kids to pride events, these sorts of things. These, these are now prerequisites to be able to foster. Um, this this kind of touches on the Fulton County case as well, right, with the Catholic Charities. Um, so we're seeing this, this sort of balkanization, maybe regional um, divide that we haven't seen since, you know, maybe the 1850s um, in the country. People are voting with their feet. Uh, the, the map itself is changing. So geography is back in play. That's real politics to think about geography again. Um, you, you have, you know, other data points would be this, this survey that I wrote about that we've talked about um, in private, the Neighborly Faith Survey on Christian Nationalism. You saw a, a stark divide on the two opposite poles between Christian Nationalist adherents, as they describe it, and we can, you know, the methodology is neither here nor there, but the adherents, and then these, the, the other polar opposite is zealot separatists, people that are, you know, uh, for all intents and purposes, secular and uh, you know, want religion have no no play sort of in in public life. Um, so these these sorts of data points indicate that we're it's inescapable that we're arriving at 
a a situation where we really have to make hard decisions and we we have to be willing to make those part of our political assessment we can't uh, you know we're way beyond just discussing sort of the uh, procedural mechanisms but also the the things that are you know like tax breaks or whatever that used to occupy us in our political life now we're back to things that are touching daily life that are about uh, the future of the country um, a lot of that, as I said, is rooted in, I think, in history, which is why we're, we're interested in our resourcement uh, project. Um, how you view what the country was dictates what you think it's supposed to be or should be. Um, so, so we're getting back mm-hmm. to all that. That's what I, I mean when I say, as you, I mean, you, you described it well, this is sort of just, as we're saying, the real politics, the real kind of nature of, of what all that entails, um, rather than something that was, um, you know, maybe maybe sort of a JV game before the varsity game, we could say that we were able to occupy for a few decades in relative peace and prosperity, prosperity made up for a lot of that. And that also has declined. And so all these things are coalescing. I would say that, I would say that some of the muscles for doing political theology among Christians atrophied during this, during this post-war liberal period, Indeed, in the sense that when when real politics are subordinated in the sense that we're saying um, to proceduralism, then, you know, what what we end up getting for political theology is, um, you know, it's not substantive defenses of a particularly Christian way of life or a particularly Christian politics, but rather it's um, it's more like making peace between Christian political uh, theology and you know pluralism, and so this is this is what sort of dominated and characterized evangelical political thought um, in the '90s. I think through until very recently, um, perhaps best exemplified in characters like Russell Moore mm-hmm. um, and and others who, you know, they really, I mean, they 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 made Christian political theology essentially coterminous with a very thick kind of pluralism and in 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 that move you know we all sort of lost our muscles our ability to make bold affirmative uh apologies mm-hmm. for a christian way of life in the public square and you know like we're having a return to a situation where uh, we must do that now um i think that you know one sort of microcosm that you could look at is um is Dobbs uh, overturning Roe versus Wade and returning uh, the issue of, of abortion to the state level where, you know, um, pro-life advocates, you know, in the past went to the Supreme Court and made constitutional or procedural arguments about abortion. But now we're having to go out there and make arguments directly to voters about the moral righteousness of our position, the pro-life position, as opposed to the pro-choice position. And, um, you know, I think the, the early returns are showing that, you know, in some ways we've we've really um, lost ability to make forceful moral arguments. Um, mm-hmm. But we, we could go down the list. There's many issues where this this is similarly the case and the country is so divided that, you know, it's hard to imagine there will be federally enforced uh, solutions that kind of impose a sort of neutrality or compromise um, in many of these cases. Uh, these issues will be uh, won through, you know, real political arguments at state and local levels. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, so anyways, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating. And and I think if I could say, if I could say one more thing about that, I mean, a lot of, a lot of the discussion of this, this new state of affairs is, you know, somewhat, uh, you know, we would call it red pilling and and somewhat depressing. Um, There is an aspect of that that's true. Another aspect of it, though, is that is a positive one, which is we're returning potentially to a a reinvigorated federalism, like you were kind of getting at there, where when you reduce uh, or, or rather return issues to state levels, which is much more proximate to the average person, uh, where local elections matter again, where state level elections matter again, municipal government matters again because it has power um, in a way that that's directly touching your life. Um, this this could return us to a a better politics um, where where you know when you read I'm finishing a, a recent biography on Samuel Adams, and it's just one part of it was discussing like the average sort of person and. Um, the average man in, in Massachusetts in the you know 1760s, how involved they were in their in their daily life, in their political mm-hmm. life. They, mm-hmm. That they could, it was rare actually that they would make it home for family dinner because of how many committees and things they're involved in. Um, this is the type of person that uh, you know built the country, and um, we because the capital is so remote from most people's lives, we've we've kind of written off real political life for a long time and and again put it on autopilot where now we may be returning to kind of what american life was meant to be where where men have a chance to step up and uh, really be involved in decision making and that's invigorating and it 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 calls people that are excellent out of maybe where they've resigned themselves to their only avenue of achievement is is private life back to public life <clears throat> yeah that's that's really well said. And, and, you know, the, the, um, I, there's a twofold recognition going on. One, I think is the, the recognition of the, um, the gridlock at the federal level, which really arises from a division, mm-hmm. right? Like the, the sort of the procedural safeguards we used to have in place in the Senate and in, in Congress, um, were there in part to help ensure that compromises would get made mm-hmm. and, Obviously, the political incentives now are are sort of against making compromises at the federal level in legislation, and so there's there's gridlock. Um, but that gridlock is a symptom of, you know, a real political divide amongst Americans about what is the good life and and all the rest. So so at the at the one hand, we're having this recognition of federal gridlock, and at the same time, we're having an increased recognition of everything that's possible at the state level, um, how much real, you know, change you can affect. Um, and it's a secular trend in the sense that blue states are becoming more distinctly progressive. And at the same time, I would say that red states are starting to move in a direction of having more energetic, uh, right-wing governance, mm-hmm. um, probably best exemplified in Florida. Um, but, you know, you're seeing it, you're seeing it elsewhere as well. Um, my native state of Tennessee is, is, um, <clears throat> you know, has, has some pretty good folks in different parts of the administration that are starting to do good things. Uh, Texas, of course, uh, the, uh, the people of Texas are constantly pushing Abbott, um, in a, in a, in a rightward direction. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a very interesting time for somebody who's followed politics for, for 12, 15 years. It's, it's one of the most like sort of interesting and 
um, unpredictable times I think I've ever, I've ever seen since I've started observing. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, okay, well that, that's good. I mean, maybe we can shift a little bit then and talk about, you know, what we see coming more particularly with respect to, um, you know, politics and just the news cycle in 24. Um, you know, what do we think, what are going to be some of the key issues in the coming year? Um, political stories, um, especially as they, they relate to Christians and Christian institutions. I've got some ideas, but, you know, uh, please, you know, go ahead and, and tell me what you think. Yeah, I will, I will start with just two and uh, briefly outline them and then, and then we can riff and you can add. Um, one is going to be, you know, the, uh, with the, the election in particular coming up, we've already seen a sort of resignation from the left that Trump is going to win. And I think many on the right uh, not only hope for that, but it's just it's just sort of sober analysis. He's going he's going to win. Um, all things point to that. Even, you know, James Carville and Tim Alberta are saying so, right? And you see this these trends on Twitter that this is this is going to be the the case. And so um, it's an expedition of the uh, sort of alternative means to combat that almost foregone conclusion that um, is ramped up um, and happening faster than a way that we saw in 2020. And so the main the main thing we're seeing now that that's happening on that front is the introduction of lawfare into um, elections, right? So this is something that is, at least in our lifetime, is very new. Um, it, again, I mentioned the, the mid-19th century earlier. We've not seen presidents being thrown or attempted to be thrown off of ballots uh, since Lincoln, right? In the South, you know, he appeared on no no ballots. This sort of maneuver is is something we're not used to. You talked earlier about, you know, atrophied political muscles on the part of Protestants. This would be the case for, I think, most Americans. We're just not used to dealing with this. So, So my only advice at this point to evangelical Protestants is to remain circumspect and, and sober in their approach and to um, not hurry their analysis. We'll no doubt see some hysterical analysis from certain outlets. Hopefully we can uh, be a, a stabilizing force in that in that regard. Uh, the second one I would bring up is just the the predictable one, which is immigration. And not just as a sort of electoral talking point, but even if we weren't having an election this year, the past year, we've seen a, an absurd amount of open border policy. Everyone, I, I think, uh, would agree on that. It's just a question whether they think it's good or bad. And that depends on what part of the political aisle you're on. And I think the the, the thing beyond just the, the, the sort of easy talking point to say we need, we need secure borders is, to, is for Protestants to start thinking again as I brought up earlier, you know, what's the character of the country? What's the baseline? What's the yardstick? And then to think um, in a older way that hasn't, these are, this goes back to atrophied muscles from the 19th and 20th century. It's usually cast as pure bigotry and xenophobia, um, but there used to be a more sober approach to this kind of, of issue, um, which begins with the question of assimilation and cultural stability. And the question on immigration should always be, you know, to what extent can we handle newcomers, not because they're bad, but because you have to think about uh, cultural and social stability. And we should be careful in this regard because it's bad for everyone if this gets out of hand. And that does require a certain kind of assimilation. 
uh, the extent to which you can do that at scale, so on and so forth. But that also, again, requires you to have a conception of what the country is as a starting point. So there's, there's something to assimilate to. And Protestants just need to get better at being self-confident and assertive. Um, we are the, it, it is a Protestant country still. It has historically been, we should take leadership over this issue, at least in the intellectual sphere and, and be uh, better on this point. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a, the immigration issue is huge. And, and I think you're, it, it will be a big flashpoint in the election. Um, but, you know, separate and apart from that, I, I think it's sort of, it's almost a, it's almost becoming a regime level problem mm -hmm. in a couple of ways. First of all, um, you know, the, the, it, I, I guess just like at a very basic level, a country that does not mind its own borders is, um, is in some senses, it's, it's actually detaching itself. It's undermining its own legitimacy from the group of people that it purportedly rules over. So in other words, you know, it, it's, it's distancing, you know, if, if in a typical nation with a functioning border, um, you have this, um, you, you have this accountability, you have this organic connection between the people that are being ruled and their rulers, um, you know, but then in the, in the case of a country with open borders, you have, um, you know, the, the, you essentially have the government sending a message to the people that are its current constituency um, that, you know, that they, um, you know, that they are somehow, you know, not essential or not sort of the core part of that government's interests, but their interests are, are broader and sort of extendable to just about anybody who's willing to you know, make a move into that country, it reduces loyalty and cohesion between the citizenry and the rulers. Mm -hmm. um, but then this is more, very more particularly, like with our governmental type, we, um, you know, we're a democratic republic. Um, there used to be, actually, this was pretty widespread, even in like the Ivy League schools, um, you know, law schools, especially, there used to be this group of theorists called the Republican theorists. They were very popular in Yale Law School in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, it, a lot of it was sort of recovery of stuff from our founding with a little bit of a liberal spin. But, um, but, but anybody that's written on the nature of republics from, you know, the classical sources through our founders up through these Republican theorists of the late 20th century they all agreed on sort of this one, um, like pretty basic point about a republic, which is that it requires um, a high degree of social cohesion, social trust. And, you know, of course, we know that social cohesion and trust are built in part upon a citizenry that has some, you know, kind of shared experience, shared history, um, shared, you know, to, to, to function of a people group being in a particular place over a particular time period. And, you know, when, when, um, so when you start to deal with the citizenry that uh, lacks that at a sufficient scale, it becomes very difficult to have a republic. And why? It's because republics, in order to function, they have all these aspects that, you know, are not enforced at the sword point, um, but it, it's sort of people behave a certain way. Oftentimes they'll, um, they'll sacrifice what might be in their immediate self-interest 
um, in order to in order to um, secure reciprocal treatment for themselves down the road, right? Mm-hmm. So this is like the this is like how we have Republican norms in the Senate, for example, where you know a, a party that might have a majority decides, you know what, we're not going to bust the filibuster rule. We're we're going to leave that in place. Um, because that helps to make sure that no laws get passed unless there's, you know, at least 60 votes for that law, right? That kind of calculus, it's kind of like, we don't want to do this because if the other side, you know, is in our position, we trust that they won't use it against us. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the, the, that's, that's sort of an example of this idea, but, but you know, it's it's all through our governmental system. I mean, all the way down to the the jury system and the fact that it, um, unlike a lot of countries in the world, we entrust, you know, we entrust 12 randomly selected citizens to decide the fate of criminal defendants. And, you know, so, so when we start, um, un- totally unfettered immigration, uh, means that a much more diverse group of people at scale are all sort of thrown together. And when people are just very different, perhaps there's language barriers, there's certainly barriers in culture and in history. And when you all have to sort of share the same space together, you start realizing, oh, we can't take for granted certain things being held in common. We can't take for granted a certain type of political behavior um, from our neighbor anymore. And that re- that reduces trust. Mm-hmm. And when trust starts to go down, that's when Republican norms start to break down. And, uh, and then you get into something, you know, like our current situation, which is, you know, where our government is purportedly a democracy. Um, but in fact, must, much of the governing is done by um, unelected people in the fourth branch of government who have very little political accountability at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's well said um, in terms of, I mean, in any regime type, um, it, you know, trust is, is necessary, whether even if you had a, a, a pure monarchy, um, the, the trust between, you know, the, the people and the monarch is the, in a sense, representative um, has to be high. Otherwise, you, you uh, arrive on occasions of tyrannicide. I mean, this is always the downfall of any regime type, uh, just is a difference in how it plays out. Um, so with the the fact that there seems to be no major political actor that is uh, directly interested in fostering trust and is willing to do what it do what it takes to foster that trust at a at a real level rather than just talk about it is should be very concerning to people. The, these are the sort of metrics that a, that should actually be applied uh, to to voting and to uh, you know any sort of political action. Um, and this is the reason, you know, you can you can quibble with numbers or whatever you want to say here. But, you know, this is the reason that Thomas Aquinas would say um, it shouldn't be until the third generation that a, a family uh, gets full participatory citizenship. So they before that, they may enjoy the protection of laws and fair treatment. Um, but to really participate in civic life, um, you need to learn how things are done. You need to fully assimilate and adopt the concerns and customs of the people. and then then you know, you'll have a, a significant degree of trust with your neighbors to where um, they'll be comfortable with you and you with them in um, making decisions that, that affect each other. 
And so the the downfall or the degradation of, of trust in the country, you know, is something that's not easily quantifiable, but is definitely being felt at this point, and it which means it was probably started a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, and 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 sorry to follow up. I, I you're right that trust is required in any form of government, but you know, tying back to some of our pre- previous discussions about, for example, empire, um, I, I think that it would be a fair point to say that um, when you have a when you have a diverse citizenry that may not have the same trust, um, you know, that kind of citizenry can be held together, um, but it's it's held together usually by sort of arrangements of convenience mm-hmm. and it looks it tends to look more like an empire with a a strongman ruler um who you know gives certain hard benefits to the different participants in a in the given policy yeah and it, it's a sort of a bar it's much more of an economic um or you know calculated bargain right about right. oh i'm going to join the roman empire because they're going to protect my people from barbarians and i get to trade and, and they'll build roads for me um, you know, that, that's the calculus when you're talking about a, a lower trust, low cohesion, uh, group of peoples, uh, whereas, you know, in a, in a, you know, in a Republic, uh, that, you know, is supposed to be centered within a nation, um, you know, the, the, the loss of trust is much more cataclysmic to the, to the regime. No, in, indeed. I mean, we could look at, we could look at something like the, um, you know, China with the Tiananmen Square, post Tiananmen Square sort of agreement, right? Which is you no longer participate um, in anything and we'll provide for you, you know, what is needed and you turn a blind eye to uh, the, the political and economic goings on. Um, that, of course, does, does work for longer, a sort of lack of trust in that particular regime type. But then um, if you, you have to account for changing material conditions, and we've seen disruption in China because of the democratization of communication, right? So that comes in and now um, all of a sudden the the, um, fractures because of low trust are expedited and it wasn't predicted before. So it inevitably will, will, the chicken will come home to roost. But I think, I mean, it's of course exactly right that in our particular regime type, um, the need for trust is, is certainly baked into the system. And if, if the second you start losing that, uh, it, it is more directly affecting uh, the, the structure of your polity. Yeah, and, and you know, perhaps re- revisiting an earlier point you made, the the fact that elections are contested now is is perhaps itself a symptom of this reduced trust. Mm-hmm. And you know, let's not forget, you know, there there was saber rattling about you know, untrustworthy elections well before 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, Hillary, uh, you know, routinely said that she lost 2016 because of Russian interference in the election. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 2018, uh, Stacey Abrams narrowly lost to Governor Kemp in, in uh, Georgia and then continued to make with, you know, with Democratic platforming, a, a national media tour saying that that election was stolen from her mm-hmm. and that she should have been the governor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course there's, there's 2020. Now the point of mentioning these things isn't to like litigate which ones were stolen and which weren't, but as a secular trend, we must say elections are contested now. Right. And, yeah. and what, you know, and that, that is a function I, I would say, or it's a symptom of the reduced trust that we have in our neighbor and in the political process. Mm-hmm. 
No, indeed. And it also touches on, I mean, you're bringing up Hillary. Um, you know, she had sort of a twofold uh, post-election campaign she made, I, I guess, for the to get the speaking fees and to to sort of moan about it. But the, um, you know, one was Russian interference. The other was misogyny. And the type of society where that second complaint even makes sense is very bizarre historically. And it gets at the more fundamental things we are talking about, uh, which is ways of life, right? Where does the, it only make sense in a certain um, sector of society that that was a real actionable complaint, that that means something. And so it just shows further disagreement and polarization as to how society functions and what the ideal for its its function should be. Yeah, yeah. Now, the, so let's let's talk a little bit about election stuff then. And um, you know, I think that um, a couple a couple points I'd make. I mean, it, I I assume we're both we're both sitting here saying, okay, the the primaries are likely to be entirely pro forma, mm -hmm. probably on both sides. But you know, on the Republican side, um, it's clear that it's pretty clear that Trump's going to win running away. Um, interestingly, there's been a lot of mainstream corporate backing of Nikki Haley. I just saw yesterday that Larry <laughs> Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, is backing uh, Nikki Haley in some pretty significant ways. But, but based on all of the polling and and all the rest, you know, maybe she finishes second or in in New Hampshire. Um, but you know, it would appear that Trump is going to generally going to run away with uh, with with the nomination on the Republican side. Ron DeSantis, um, you know, had a lot of energy and enthusiasm about his uh, governorship and his track record as governor in Florida. Um, but for various reasons, the campaign just hasn't uh, taken off. It's the boots. Um, it, yeah, the boots, whatever else, you know. Um, it, you know, I think the real, you know, some of it, I, I mean, you could perhaps you can blame some of it on Ron, but I think. Uh, you know, I think another big thing is that um, with the ongoing political persecution of Donald Trump, I think the Republican electorate, um, I, I, all of that has just solidified their loyalty to Trump and their, you know, their sense that it's actually really important that we not let the, you know, sort of the corrupt DOJ and FBI and all the rest get away with it, uh, you know. Yeah. And so that has been a very significant headwind, I think, that that ultimately is going to keep Donald Trump at the top of the ballot on the Republican side. Um, you know, on the Democratic side, uh, it's obviously, it's, you know, I'm sure most Democratic strategists would love to find a way to get Joe Biden out of the picture. But um, him and the people around him uh, don't want to leave so that's going to be a very interesting one to watch um, if it if it remains Joe Biden at the top of the Democratic ticket or if um, operatives are able to find a way uh, to strong arm him into stepping back uh, or, or finding some other procedural mechanism. Yeah, um, I think I mean, on the if we're just doing sort of the analysis of the field, I mean, it's it is interesting to me the. Um, you know, one DeSantis uh, totally wasted a run. And I mean, if if he could have would have called me before he announced on X 
you know, which then tanked uh, or, or like, uh, you know, was disrupted in the middle. It, it was a total disaster of an announcement. And it also appealed only to a small population of the country. Um, I would have told him not to run because, you know, the, the X factor that is Donald Trump is just so unpredictable and no one's seen anything like it. You, you might as well just not bother it um, until it's over and, and you could wait another four years. He's young, uh, won in a landslide in Florida for his reelection. So he should have just waited. Um, and he's been sort of stiff and exposed himself as lacking any charisma. And so it was just, it was just a bad showing for him. Uh, but more importantly, the, the Nikki Haley thing of, you know, in this particular climate with the types of voters she should be trying to appeal to, to try to siphon them off from Trump, you know, being uh, proud of the fact that BlackRock is supporting you is just tone deaf, is totally beyond me that, that, that you would even want that to be announced. Uh, money aside, that's just <laughs> really bizarre, especially giving, uh, given BlackRock's uh, probable involvement in, in dictating a lot of what's going on in the housing market and so on and so forth. Um, so the, you know, the, the field has just not performed well against Trump. And then you add into the, to the mix um, what you were talking about, which is the, um, you know, Trump's ability to remain in the news cycle um, I've probably said it before, but, you know, Steve Bannon's famous mantra that all press is good press and bad press is better. You know, the, a lawsuit every week, what what have you, just has a way of, of keeping him around you know, over the past four years. And that's something you just can't compete with, including his, his personality and the b- bizarre kind of energy around him. Um, so it's just not a fight that's that's winnable, and they've done nothing to help themselves along the way anyway. So I think it is a foregone conclusion. He runs away with all the polls say run away with the nomination. And then, as I said, even Democratic operatives that are just sort of being realist in their analysis would, would admit he's, he, he probably, you know, wins the general um, at, the, at this stage, barring all kinds of, um, you know, shenanigans we could have over the summer and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and, and that's where it starts to, right. So, so as we handicap it, you know, 95 plus percent chance that Trump is the Republican nominee. Um, and then, you know, pretty good chance that he wins, mm-hmm. uh, at least from where we sit today. And, you know, what, what all of that means for, for us and, and I, more broadly for Christians is 24 is going to be a crazy year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, let's go back to 2020 or 2016. In both cases, we had, you know, two parties with, official party platforms that could not have been more different. And it was very clear which way an an Orthodox Christian should vote in both Mm -hmm. of those elections. Mm -hmm. I think I'm ready to state that definitively. Mm -hmm. Just look at the official platforms and see what they say right on their face. And that tells you it's sort of a prima facie determination. You don't need to do a lot of fact finding. Sure, there's lots of nuanced policies you could debate about on the margins, but you know, on the whole, you know, one party supports essentially infanticide and Mm -hmm. supports um, broadly available uh, medical and social experimentation on children and all the rest. And the other party, um, while far from perfect, does not. And so, you know, just in a very basic way, um, you know, the, the decision in 2016 and 2020 should have been sort of no brainers for most American Protestants. And yet, um, most of our elite institutions, um, you know, equivocated, 
or just devoted their time to politically demoralizing mm-hmm. evangelical voters. Um, so, you know, we had, of course, this oft-cited statistic, you know, Southern Baptists went broke about 90% for Donald Trump. And at the same time, we had the head of our think tank going on cable news, um, demeaning Trump voters, calling them white supremacists and all the rest. Um, you know, American Reformer was really in, in many ways born out of widespread uh, disappointment in elite evangelical institutions coming out of 2020. Uh, you know, that was a year where they, I think, in a lot of ways failed um, in their in their public witness when it came to politics. Um, they, you know, then they also uh, largely failed by, you know, in many cases, laundered their influence and platforms uh, to push people to be COVID maximalists, to go get the shot, to wear the mask, to shut their churches down. Well, at the same time, they were, you know, joining in the BLM march down the street and all the Mm -hmm. rest. And so, you know, there was very widespread dissatisfaction with elite evangelical institutions coming out of 2020. Um, And I think, you know, I've, I've been seeing this recently from some um, larger pastors and some people with institutional connections, there's some signs, uh, you know, that, that some of the evangelical elite are, are sort of rethinking what they did in 2020. Um, I mean, just, just uh, yesterday, a clip came out of, of uh, Francis Collins, mm-hmm. uh, who, you know, basically was saying, yeah, you know, back during the COVID lockdowns, you know, my mandate was just save as many lives as possible. I didn't take any social costs into account in that decision making. I was just risk minimizing. Um, you know, and that was a very narrow, myopic way to look at it. He admits now, three years later, there, there's a reckoning that's happened, and people are, I think, changing their tune. They've changed their tune on CRT. That was a really hot topic three years ago, and generally people are sort of retreating from it now. But I think more fundamentally, the, the, the challenge as we look ahead to 24 is that, you know, great, um, you know, with the, with the benefit of three years, some people have changed their tunes about what they would have done. Um, but 24 very likely has some things in store that none of us have even predicted yet. And, you know, the, the, the same set of faulty instincts that got elite evangelicals in trouble in 2020 um, are presumably still there, and they will be manifested in different, unexpected ways in the coming year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Um, there's there's definitely something of a realignment that's happened, just not necessarily because of um, it, it, well, as you were laying out, it's it, laying out, it's multifaceted. Um, it's it's not just the elections; it's other. Um, things that have happened that have sort of waken people up. I mean, anecdotally, this is very easy to measure when you, when you talk to people, um, people are just thinking differently now about political life. I mean, this goes back to sort of our opening. I think people, even if they don't have the theoretical categories for it are recognizing, uh, the return of real politics in a, in a certain way. And that, you know, can come down to, uh, the sort of health policy you were, you're bringing up or just failure of, of leadership and elites, um, to represent them or to provide guidance. You know, it's, it's, it's twofold. It's one, you know, Russell Moore didn't represent the rank and file. And then two, he didn't provide, um, strong, good leadership. If he did think the rank and file were wrong, he just sort of castigated them. Um, 
that people are, are, are tired of this, tired of giving their money to it, their support to it. Um, and they're looking for alternatives. And I like to think that American reformers provided at least on the intellectual front an, an alternative, um, a, a, you know, certainly an array of, of opinions. We're not, uh, we don't, we don't take as an institution strong stances on any particular uh, intellectual debate, but we like to house them and, and facilitate them, to, uh, we think, for the better. Um, so I do new conversations that have emerged. I mean, the Christian nationalist one is the most obvious uh, to rethink sort of basics, but that has all been post-2020 kind of occurrences where people are, even have the bandwidth to and the wherewithal to to rethink these most basic kind of things. So I think in that way it is it is positive, but the only way is through and 2024 is going to present a lot of challenges. And I think you're going to see the final breakdown of, of many established institutions that uh, previously presumed leadership but didn't earn it and uh, have sort of rested on their laurels. Uh, I think you're going to see their their sort of final fading away, at least at least in the in terms of the influence they used to control. Yeah. Yeah. And and and. Circling back on something you said there, so so the, I, I think this is why I have I'm very excited about this uh, Baptist symposium that we're running, um, you know, because in the Christian nationalist debate um, has been I mean it's been very very good and and um, you know very I think like a, a a good refreshing reset for a lot of people thinking about politics from the ground up. Um, but you know, particularly with Baptists, um, there there is a strand of Baptist thought. Maybe it's even the majority strand uh, that you know can't go all the way with uh, establishment, uh, formal establishment, and you know, and so so there's been some. I, I think just there's some haziness in terms of how far along uh, with the Christian Nationalist Project can Baptists go. And so, you know, what, what I'm excited about with this symposium is, one, just getting different views on the table about that very question. And then, two, you know, unpacking and maybe moving towards even framing out a positive um, assertion of, you know, what does, what does a positive Baptist politics look like um, in the midst of, a, you know, in the midst of liberalism failing and liberalism breaking down? Mm-hmm. So what 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 can Baptists organize around, whether that's Christian nationalism or some other, you know, nice moniker. But but what's what's actually the positive vision for government that mm-hmm. that, uh, that Baptists can unite around? Because, you know, as we know, the um, you know, the SBC has 13, 14 million members and then, you know, a bunch of the rest of evangelical America is de facto Baptist, whether they, um, you know, are part of the you know, part of a Baptist convention or not, um, they are, you know, Baptist in a lot of ways, uh, in a lot of their theology. And so, you know, we, I think like any, any movement at scale in this nation for Protestant Christians to have a political renewal in, it necessarily involves, um, articulating, uh, theories that, that, that can work within a Baptist framework. Right. I mean, we all have to uh, admit, one, that, as you said, Baptists are, are predominant in terms of Protestant denominations, even if it's not technically a denomination or it is or it's not. It's, it's hard to say. Uh, but it is, a, you know, for these sociological purposes, denomination. 
and then um, you know just the reach of the SBC, uh, which is which has generally been a great thing for evangelicalism. Um, you can measure that through the reach of seminary training, um, and, and then just uh, for a long time the the public voices were at least SBC adjacent, right? The the dominant public mm-hmm. voices were in that sphere of influence. Whether you go, you know, we could talk about. Uh, may talk in the future about Christianity today and where it's gone because we were talking about Russell Moore earlier. Uh, but when you had Billy Graham and Carl F. H. Henry and some of those guys um, out sort of leading the charge, uh, whatever you want to give them as a job assessment, the point is they were SBC or SBC adjacent. And that, that influence is still around, whether through Al Mohler or other sort of emerging voices. So I do agree that um, in a sort of, as, as we've talked about at American Reformer, our vision is to return to a pan-Protestant sort of ecumenism um, with with some ability for diversity, especially if we have a reinvigorated federalism on the ground. And there has to be a place for that, uh, for Baptists, not only to participate, but but to uh, take leadership. So I'm, I'm also very excited to see some leading Baptist voices that have their heads on straight, that are in touch with their own tradition and Protestantism generally in America, uh, to think about... Um, not just you know the sort of Baptist response to Christian nationalism, but the the Baptist place in a reinvigorated Protestant American life. Yep, wonderful. Well, um, you know, I, I think we've basically we've basically exhausted everything I wanted to talk about here. Um, maybe maybe a, here's a, here's an exit question, and then we can we can wrap this one up. Um, that. There, people are now broadly predicting that there will be a black swan event in 2024. Now, arguably, this is a little bit oxymoronic. A black swan event is definitionally something that you cannot expect. Um, but, uh, you know, Tucker's talked about it. And then uh, there was uh, there was an intelligence analyst actually on, on a major cable network um, about a week ago who similarly predicted a, a black swan event in mm. 2024. Um, COVID was the black swan event in 2020, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of came out of nowhere. Nobody knew what it was. And it, you know, it, it fundamentally altered the course of history. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and nobody had it, had it planned, but, uh, if there were to be a black swan event in 24, uh, what, what would your bet, what do you think it would be? Hmm. Well, I guess the, the one that I raised earlier, um, the, the two issues I raised earlier, I'm just going to run with them and say it will have something to do with either um, some creative lawfare uh, that will cause. Now, there's a question of whether, you know, Trump's even off the ballot in Colorado at this point. Um, I think the secretary of state has weighed in there, um, you know, and that that's all very preliminary and doesn't, to my mind, seem like it will have a huge effect. But these other lawsuits and criminal indictments um are already known to us, but their outcome could, you know, qualify as a black swan event, something we haven't seen before um, that w- would put people in a bind in terms of the, their decision making. Uh, you could add to that some kind of change in the Democratic field uh, with with whether or not Biden is going to be the, the candidate uh, could really change things. Um, the other one would be some kind, you know, with with mass immigration, um, you know, it's not just our southern border is obviously the main uh, focus, but it's not just people from south of the border that are coming in. It's other kinds of, of people from all around the world that could create sort of domestic security concerns. And any kind of massive domestic con- security concern 
uh, could alter things. Um, and I'm not just meaning the sort of rioting that we saw in certain cities in 2020, uh, but something larger than that. Um, you know, there's long been concerns of connected to illegal immigration from around the world uh, relating to our, you know, our power grid and things like this. Um, so any kind of um, domestic security concern um, or event would certainly, um, you know, disrupt the election. Yeah, I I think the I think the domestic security concern is very real. I just, I, you know, we we are having ten to fifteen thousand unidentified adult males cross our border every single day, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I I think I think that's probably a pretty safe bet. Um, but you know, look, we, we will see. I mean, the one thing the one thing we know that you know we've got to be ready for in twenty four is, you know, anchored in anchored in scripture, anchored in the Christian tradition, anchored in our political, um, our particular political tradition. Um, but then also just be aware of, um, you know, what time it is, so to speak, uh, know, know the times. And I, I think just be, be circumspect. I think it's, it's likely to be a year in which there's a lot of very wild news. There's a lot of quick, uh, reaction, overreaction, and uh, you know this. This is a. I think it's it's a time where, um, you know, where Christians broadly have an opportunity not just to act prudently but to be a stabilizing force in this nation. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's our hope and prayer. Um, and that's what you know. That's really what keeps me excited and gets me out of bed every morning right. and doing the work that we do. Well, I, and I'll just add is, a um, couple thing, things yeah. on that. I mean, one, you know, in the news cycle prudent um, Christians should, should recognize that the news cycle is designed to um, get a response out of you immediately. It's not um, designed for you to think slowly about things. And so the way to sort of, uh, you know, hack the system is, is to be careful um, because that's not what it's meant to do. Um, but, but two, the, you know, I would just remind everybody that Part of part of thinking well within the Protestant tradition, the Reformation tradition, is not just the theory, but is to look. At, I mean, you would do well. People would do well to read um, the sort of standard, meaning not purely theoretical, but the history of the Reformation and how the reformers navigated um, an equally disruptive, if not more disruptive, and cataclysmic time. And they were very prudent, and they knew how to to handle politics. I'm finishing a book now on Jacob Sturm, who almost no one's heard of, but he helped. He was a magistrate that helped lead the Reformation in Strasbourg. And you know, they're very nimble, and they're they're very capable of achieving mm-hmm. real reform, religious reform, but also recognizing they have pre-existing structures that they have to deal with and, and populations. And um, they just, they were able to do it. Luther's the same way, right? So there's lessons that can be learned from their almost proverbial lessons um, to, to think about that Christians should readopt rather than being so reactionary in terms of the news cycle and also so purely pie in the sky. Yeah, 100%. And I should say too, like when we talk about prudence, you know, I think some people hear the word prudence and they hear passive mm-hmm. um, or you know, non-active, um, you, you know, like, oh, you know, we are, you know, as if we were advocating for people to be spectators, but I think it's actually quite the opposite. I mean, a lot of times it means taking action 
Um, it means picking a course and committing to it and not deviating from it. Um, even if, um, you know, even if you're encountering resistance or you're encountering news cycle distractions that might seek to take you off your course, Mm -hmm. um, you know, prudence, uh, prudence in part means, you know, pick a plan and, and stick to it. And, you know, I think that's the, that's probably the key thing in 24 too, is that Christians, we know we need to be protecting and buttressing our own institutions. We need to be putting ourselves as individuals and as communities in more um, anti-fragile positions. All of that work needs to continue apace. Um, we need to stay totally committed to it mm-hmm. in, in you know, 24. And this might be the year where, you know, again, having that stability um, and institutional resilience enables us to um, to reach beyond the borders of our own community and actually, you know, bring stability for our neighbors and, and our communities. Right. Yeah, I was just, uh, this is the last thing I'll say. I was just listening to, to Aaron Wren talk with Kevin DeYoung about his, you know, his three world stuff. And of course they got into Protestant elites um, of a bygone era now. Um, but it just struck me that, you know, evangelicals, including their institutions for the past several decades have been so reactive to the culture, which is really to say letting um, external matters dictate your course rather than if you're going to take um, charge in a sort of leadership way, um, you set the course, mm-hmm. right? You're not, um, it doesn't mean you're not responsive or aware, um, but you're not reactive in a sort of violent way. And you don't let the external things dictate your general course, even as you're uh, appropriately responsive. So I think just that sort of, again, part of what American Reformer wants to do is remind us of a of a tradition and a culture that that we still have, but we we often forget about and give us more self-confidence to lead well um, in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. Very well said. All right, time in. I think. um I, I think we've uh, we've talked about everything there is to talk about for 2024. Um, we can just hang it up now. And uh, no, but we, we, we have a lot of work to be done. Um, and uh, it's uh, it's a year that we can look forward to with a lot of, I think, a lot of hope and excitement, um, even as we don't know exactly what's coming out of that mm-hmm. gate. Indeed. Yep. So, happy New Year. Yeah. Happy New Year. Thank you. And audience, thank you. And until next time, God bless. You can find American Reformer on the internet at www.americanreformer.org or on x.com, formerly Twitter, at amreformer. Don't forget to like, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Please consider supporting us today by making a tax-deductible donation through our secure online donation portal at AmericanReformer.org. That's AmericanReformer.org.